Hi, and welcome to Weird Times, a podcast about mental health during COVID-19, brought to you by Hard Feelings. I'm Kate Scowan, the founder of Hard Feelings and a social worker in private practice. In this podcast, we're going to talk about mental health and specifically about mental health during COVID times, or what I've been simply referring to as weird times. We want this podcast to be a space that builds community with compassion and care for what you're going through now. It's not meant to replace a therapy session, but we hope it can help you in other ways, providing information and insights, and by sharing stories of how others are struggling and coping. Today, we're going to talk about eating disorders during COVID-19. Specifically, we're going to talk about ways to support yourself and others. Know that in this conversation, there may be uh, things that come up that you might find are triggering for you in conversation, talking about uh, eating disorders and related behaviors. And we hope that you can make sure that you have the resources you need to stay and feel safe. And also know that at the end of the podcast, we will be listing some resources that will be available to you to reach out to if you need further support. Ari Maharaj is joining us today to chat a bit about coping with eating disorders during COVID-19. Ari is a registered psychotherapist, qualifying member in the community of practice at Hard Feelings. He's also the Outreach and Education Coordinator at the National Eating Disorder Information Center, NEDIC, where he strives to take a preventative, proactive approach to helping people affected by food and weight concerns in hopes of buffering them from developing an eating disorder. Hi, Ari. Hi. So maybe we could start by just uh, talking a little bit about how self-isolation and social distancing impacts someone who's struggling with challenges around food and body image and an eating disorder. What are the things um, that are you're most seeing through your work um, or that you know most about in terms of, of how this is impacting people? One is food insecurity. And it's a really interesting one because while the research on it is right now just correlational, um, there's a link between food insecurity and binge eating in particular. And I think, I don't know if many may be surprised to hear this, but binge eating disorder, um, as compared to bulimia nervosa and anorexia nervosa, is actually the most common diagnosis of an eating disorder in Canada. And folks who lack resources to regularly purchase enough food to meet their nutritional needs during this time um, may be undergoing a lot of forced cycles of food restriction at the moment and that can often really increase risk for binge eating that way Um, when your body's like hey give me food to survive and you um, aren't able to do that um, you're more likely to binge after through the biological effect of starvation and so that economic strain that we're having during covid totally intersects here with a, a mental health strain around binge eating and um it's, it's an interesting indication of like the social determinants of health, right? How we've heard stories of folks from families who suffer from food shortages and these folks are really struggling and sometimes they may develop a sense of shame around their appetite or guilt about eating something when they know that their family might not have a lot of food during this time or are extra surrounded by food because we're stocking up. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's like one that comes straight off the bat. Are there communities specifically that are more deeply impacted by issues related to eating disorders? There is the societal stigma that it's like often a young, like white, female identified person's illness and often like someone who's in a thinner body. And we have those images that even a lot of us in the eating disorder fields in the 90s and 2000s and even maybe still now perpetuate sometimes. But while they disproportionately affect women and female identified folks, um, rates of eating disorders are kind of similar-ish across socioeconomic statuses and across race. But 
it's gender and sexual orientation that's been the really um, alarming, I think, social identity characteristic that often puts people larger at risk. And while we don't have a lot of Canadian data on this, um, one recent study in 2018 from the Trevor Project in the United States showed that in a survey of LGBTQ plus youth in the U.S., um, 54% of respondents indicated that they had already been diagnosed with an eating disorder. Um, and that's a wild number mm-hmm. when you think about, in general, um, people know that I think eating disorders affect around a million Canadians. Um, that's the population of Saskatchewan or the population of Ottawa for my Ontarians. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's, that's a lot of people. There's a chance that it affects more than that because that survey is from 2012 and the global prevalence of eating disorders is 7.8% and that's a 3% number. So we're more likely higher than that. And when we think about who receives diagnoses, um, a lot of folks from underserved communities um, may get told that their eating disorder is something else, that um, it isn't this mental health condition, that it's... um, displaced anger or another way of coping and they maybe don't take it seriously and don't get help so i think there are communities that sometimes we miss in our testing and assessment and that's a disservice that we're doing to them but um what the philosophy we take is that if it's a concern for you when you're contacting us then it's a concern for us and we can talk about it yeah it's so complicated right it's so layered interesting what you were talking about around the the shame about appetite and I think, you know, from, from my experiences around uh, eating disorders, that's, that's a big issue. Eating disorder behaviors are often a way of coping with difficult emotions and like our hard feelings, quote unquote. Um, and people don't know often how to handle them any differently. So the eating disorder behavior sometimes just comes up because that's what makes sense at the time. And I'm really mindful, too, of maybe folks who are quarantining or in isolation with other folks and other folks may also be heightened with their stress like family members or loved ones and sometimes we don't take that out in a productive way sometimes we take that out on other people and that just heightens your stress a little bit more and makes someone maybe a little bit more likely to turn to an eating disorder behavior if that's what they're a little bit more predisposed to Um, so these are really like self-defeating cycles sometimes and um, I think it can feel really exhausting and interestingly you know really coping mechanisms in a way, but coping mechanisms that actually end up, you know, hurting us and and driving that sort of shame spiral harder. Mm-hmm. And I, I think I, I like the um, way that a lot of dialectical behavioral therapists often think about it in the sense that like, that's a coping me- mechanism that made sense in that time for that person often. And um, what a lot of the key is for someone who's Um, looking to get help, which I think we'll probably talk about later, is recognizing like when that coping mechanism um, makes sense and when it doesn't and what other harm is that coping mechanism causing and can we learn and through skill-wise or talking to support people or through other ways to replace that coping mechanism with something that's a little bit more useful and a little bit more beneficial that makes you feel better ultimately. And talking about, you know, our our own struggles with eating disorders, oftentimes, too, as we said, we're now in isolation with family members or roommates who we may start to notice some behaviors that are worrisome. I, for example, live with a person who struggles with an eating disorder. 
she knows she gave me permission to say that. Um, and it's an ongoing conversation in our house. You know, it's sort of, oh, this is a bad ED day or I'm struggling today. This is so I get a lot of signals. We have a lot of communication around it. And it's something that's openly discussed in our house. And I think in some ways that's unique, maybe because I'm a therapist or maybe not. But in a lot of households, especially if you're not living with family, but maybe you're living with roommates, or actually maybe sometimes it's easier to talk to a roommate than your family about it. And it's hard too, because sometimes it's someone we care about, but we're not actually living with them, but we're noticing it far away, right? It's it's complicated for people who are concerned to be able to bring it up in a safe way. So that kind of gets us into what can you do? Because I know in a lot of ways, eating disorders can be um, suggestive, right? What would the conversation look like? How, how could we have a conversation with someone without being... Um, you know, implying that we think someone has an eating disorder for fear of that actually diving them in deeper? Or is that just an assumption I have? Maybe that wouldn't happen. You know, what are the gentle, empathetic ways that we can ask questions and have conversations with people about this? Mm -hmm. I think it's really mindful that you're thinking about it in this way, too, because I think it's almost similar to like self-harm and suicide in a way where like we're scared of potentially bringing up that because we don't want to, we don't want to put the thought in their head. But as we've seen in self-harm and suicide research, um, bringing it up is actually um, a good thing. It like shows the seriousness of it. And as long as you're bringing it up and you're taking it seriously rather than like using the word eating disorder as like a, um, like a slur or just a way to put someone else down, um, that's not what to do. But um, bringing it up seriously is, isn't a bad thing. Um, I think usually what I like to start people thinking with is, First, that like prevention really does start with them um, and being a good support human really does like there's something each and every one of us can do to be a better human being, to get a better sense of resources when you're feeling kind of nervous or awry and um, to really help your loved ones maybe like get on the path around next steps. And the first step, I think, is something that your listeners, if you're listening right now, are already doing, which is becoming informed. Mm-hmm. Um Medic, the organization that I work for, is an information center. So we believe in the power of information and becoming informed um, as a way to create change. And while we have a wide collection of resources, you can go on the site to read yourself or you can chat with us on the helpline to get something more tailored to your context. I really want people to know that like 35%-ish of our helpline contacts are actually from friends and loved ones just like you. So um, don't feel like you're taking services away if this exact conversation is something that you think you're struggling with or it's really hard for you. Um, The first kind of step after becoming informed is to really check your own beliefs and attitudes and biases around food weight and shape because chances are if you um, have accidentally or unintentionally been a judgmental person around food weight and shape, chances are your loved one might not feel as comfortable reaching out to you about it because if you think about it like why would you reach out to someone who you feel may judge you Um, and some good signs around like whether thinking about whether you are judgmental or not is like have you attached moral words like good and bad to a certain kind of body or a certain kind of food Um, it's something that happens to everyone we are surrounded in a media culture and a hollywood culture especially that does this all the time but for those who are affected um, what they don't want is you to have an opinion on food and weight because everyone has an opinion about food and weight and they're often not shy to let this information known despite how wrong it might be. 
Yeah, no, that does make a lot of sense. And I think that we all, you know, carry biases. And, um, and that I think that self-reflective piece is really important. And I know, again, as I, you know, said earlier that I, I live with someone with an eating disorder, and I am trying to always think about it and always think about my biases and, and trying to be that good support person um, and have conversations in empathetic ways that are really grounded in questions, not this is what I'm noticing, right? Because that comes with bias and why am I even noticing that? Um, and more from uh, engaging them in a conversation about their perspective and where they're at um, and seeing how they're doing using those I statements like I'm worried about you and you're not really seeming like yourself like what's going on lately mm -hmm. or um like I want you to know that I'm here and I care and like I I see that potentially something might be up and like I'm here to talk if you want to mm -hmm. um whether that's a zoom call or a phone call or letters like um virtual communication especially for those of you who um, are not with your loved one in person can also be a really powerful way to communicate with someone because there's so much reflection. You're like thinking about the words when you're typing it or putting it down on paper. Mm -hmm. And sometimes that can even be helpful rather than when you're in the moment with someone, it's really easy to like lose control of what you were trying to say. Um, and you can get lost with the emotions sometimes. Yeah. And there is a lot of emotion, right? Because I think also there's a lot of fear for people around eating disorders. It has... Uh, the highest mortality rate of any mental health issue? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Outside of opioid addiction, if we want to count, we do count opioid addiction within the mental health sphere. So anorexia specifically has the second highest mortality rate. Mm -hmm. But yeah, very deadly. Right. And I think there is fear in that for folks. And I, um, so I think that that's part of it too. And, and so really uh, reflecting on our own biases, really... Um, staying away from any kind of commentary or conversation around food intake or food or bodies or, you know, as you said, any moral judgment around what's good or bad, um, and really just consistently being there through the ups and downs, because there are lots of ups and downs. With any mental health issue, it's, it's no different than if you're being a safe person for someone struggling with anxiety or depression or any other uh, physical health condition, chronic illness. It's about being consistently there and knowing that, you're, that you can be that person for them. Right, right. Being disorders really aren't that different from any mental health condition. While they have their like unique idiosyncrasies and the behaviors, and I think a lot of fear around them, similar to like self-harm-y kinds of mental health challenges. Um, ultimately, like the stuff that a support person has to do really isn't all that different. There's maybe a little bit unique ways, like we talked about here around food and bodies that maybe people can be aware of, but ultimately being a safe person is being a safe person. Yeah, we could all strive to be safe, safe people for our loved ones, and then also safe people for ourselves. So we, you know, um, moving into, you know, we've talked a lot about what it is to support somebody um, who we love or is in our life that uh, we're noticing some changes or may have a, a declared eating disorder or challenges, struggles around food and body image. What if that person is us? Um, so how can we be a safe person for ourselves in these times? How can we um, take care of ourselves if if we're struggling right now? How do we identify our triggers, shift away from them in these very weird, complex times? 
Mm-hmm. And I think that acknowledging the times is probably where I would start and making sure that we know that it makes sense during this period of uncertainty and instability that you've been relying more on your eating disorder thoughts and behaviors because um, especially as you manage your activities around food and exercise, um, it makes sense that those thoughts and behaviors are coming up because that's what you know, that's what your brain knows and that's how you've coped. And um, first and foremost, it doesn't mean that you're failing or that um, you're worse because those things are coming back a little bit more right now. Um, the pandemic is kind of like a big whole trauma response that can be happening um, for you right now. And that's something that's okay. And um, while it may not be ideal, I think I was looking at a CMHA survey before um, I came on today and um, it, they were saying how only 13% of those that they surveyed in Ontario um, of people with mental health conditions have indicated that they're actively reaching out for support during this time. Mm-hmm. And I think for folks with eating disorders, given how isolating it is and given maybe how weird online support could be, especially because a lot of people are doing that via video and it can be jarring to see yourself sometimes on video if your body is something that you're concerned about. Um, please know that there's really good research and evidence on doing online stuff with folks for eating disorders. And while many service providers are learning this for the first time, there are eating disorder informed providers that are available to help. And the primary reason why Netic exists is to have a free helpline and a free chat line for for you to reach out to, to connect you to these care providers. In terms of some like really practical things, if one real underrated thing that I think I've heard happen a lot recently, especially is seeing what you can do to help others. And often it can provide a sense of purpose and can be something to do with others in your life. And that social benefit is really empowering when you're like supporting elderly members of your neighborhood by like writing them a letter or reaching out to loved ones with a drawing or an email and engaging in whatever your normal kind of self-care strategies are because it's probably a little bit harder right now and that community care so people in your support network whether that's scheduling some like zoom dates or um like virtual lunches or talking to your support network directly about meal planning, because maybe that's something that's coming up. And we talked about food insecurity at the beginning and planning in advance and writing down things in advance can help lessen some of that anxiety. And if other people know, they can help encourage you to stick to those plans. And um, we don't have to necessarily think about like safe foods and challenging foods, but you know which ones are safe for you and which ones may be challenging but manageable Mm -hmm. and sticking to those and knowing when challenging ones are going to come up making sure to involve support humans around you during that time whether that's a virtual appointment with your therapist or dietitian or a skype or a facetime with a loved one um, because maybe that'll help distract you to get you through that meal Um, it can be really hard but i really want people struggling to know that um when there was a study in Barcelona of um, eating disorder patients during the pandemic and Spain was one of the first countries hit with COVID and 56% of people reported being more heightened. And while that's a lot, it's a majority of humans. I'm also struck by the fact that that means 44% of people reported they were doing okay. Mm -hmm. And it speaks to the resilience of humans across time that we do have skills and strengths to work with. And that a step backwards doesn't mean we're falling down the stairs. 
Yeah, that's uh, that's so important. I think that we often, you know, when things come up, we get a feel a little lost, and it's hard to actually. Uh, connect with our resilience and tap into that. So those are, you know, really interesting strategies for someone who's struggling with an eating disorder or challenges around food and and body image. I love the idea of um, sort of turning the spotlight outwards instead of inwards, sort of like looking around and how do we engage in supporting other people that kind of pulls um, that self-focus off that can be so distressing and then reaching out and connecting with people who can really be part of our safe person teams. Maybe it's one person, maybe it's multiple people, but who can really help us with our strategies, with our strategies to sort of implement them and sustain them. Um, Cause that's, this is all good in, you know, right now. Um, these are really important strategies and things to know. And I, I'm thinking too about folks who are really noticing maybe for the first time, um, you know, in themselves, some behaviors or concerns around how they're using, uh, using food, restricting or binging to cope right now. And that it's sort of a flag for them, like, whoa, what's, what's this, what's going on? Um, and it may be really early days for them in the process of actually figuring out, okay, this is this is a challenge. So, so say someone's in that space where they're really starting to notice within themselves uh, some concerns. As we look at, you know, COVID right now, this is where we're at. We don't know how long this is going to go on for. Um, and these are good strategies in the moment. But what are some strategies longer term that people can consider moving forward if they're if they're starting to notice? new things in themselves that are concerning and also, um, again, struggling with heightened um, behaviors and thoughts around their eating disorders. How do we look beyond COVID um, in terms of coping and strategies? Yeah. And yeah, I think it's really important that you're bringing up the the first timers, because I think on the helpline, especially, we've seen a fair amount of first timers noticing for the first time for a variety of reasons, like for some, this is like the first time that they actually have like an extended pause in their life mm-hmm. in some ways. For others, it's an extremely very stressful time and um, they're noticing the ways in which they're coping. And I think the fact that that person is aware of it and they've labeled that as like, oh, well, that's not very good. Um, like that's a really powerful thing in and of itself. Um, and the will to change and the, the motivation and the priority to change um, is something that's really important. In terms of like longer term strategies, I think hmm, the first one that comes to mind is um, something that's, I think, applicable across the board is trying to keep some structure to your day. Um, like little things like getting up at regular times and getting dressed, um, like noticing when those early warning signs are coming up and starting to log and pattern like, oh, like this is when this seems to happen. That kind of insight and reflection can be really powerful, especially longer term. Um, Thinking about like what you need to actually manage your mental health. So thinking of organizing regular catch-ups with loved ones, regardless of how you're feeling, for example, like maybe Friday night, you're always going to like group call with someone or you're going to go online and play a game or something like that. Those are all really wonderful stuff, regardless of how you're feeling to just have in your calendar, because it will prevent that extra isolation if it's there. It's going to be really easy for you to try to like run away from that and put that away. 
Um, but that social support is the biggest predictor of resilience. Um, and if that's hard for you, if you don't think you have loved ones, um, I'm really proud of the Canadian eating disorder community because I think we've um, come together in a short period of time to try to put online spaces together. And Netic as a um, information hub and a resource hub for this has a lot listed on our COVID FAQ. There are some safe online spaces that are often free in terms of peer support or group therapy, group support um, that could be helpful for someone. And I think the last thing I'll mention here is um, to really get through the wave. The pandemics can feel like a really long wave and um, often we have to sit with and tolerate that distress and sometimes it's the first time we're kind of experiencing it and if you did absolutely nothing the wave would pass in time because nothing lasts forever um, but we can sometimes speed up the process or reduce the intensity of that distress or how long it lasts so sometimes that's through creating certain action plans and if you just think about it as maybe right now you're a three out of ten and that's where your distress is and maybe you can get through that by phoning a friend or writing in a journal or taking a bath or doing some coloring but when that distress is up to a seven out of ten those like normal self-care techniques might not be working and you might need to do something completely different like calling the helpline or chatting in with us online or contacting a close family member to let them know that you're struggling or a safe person in your life um you just even having that awareness, if this is your first time or if this is a recurring thing for you of what your three out of 10 feels like and what that seven out of 10 feels like are going to be invaluable assets for you as you move forward to try to have support and action plans in for all levels of that distress to help you feel more in control of your life. Yeah. And I think, you know, the, the again, going back to the idea that eating disorders are isolating and we're living in self-isolation. So it's kind of like a double, double double layer um, and that building, uh, you know, yourself as a safe person for other people and also for yourself and being able to really build your empathy uh, and self-compassion to help you sit with a friend who needs to ride the wave or you yourself are able to sit with yourself and be your companion through that um, and really be gentle with yourself. So thanks so much, Ari. We really appreciate you being here. Thank you. It was so lovely to be on. Thanks for listening today. If you want to learn more about Ari's work at Netic, you can check out their website at netic.ca. On the site, there's an online chat feature where you can speak to a support worker to receive in-the-moment help, learn about connecting yourself or a loved one to care, and receive insight on different informational resources that are available. You can also call their toll-free helpline at one 866 633 4220. To learn more about hard feelings, you can find us at hardfeelings.org or on Instagram and Facebook at hardfeelingsto. If you're in crisis, check the resource list on our website for some places you can connect with in Toronto or reach out to your local distress center or helpline. We hope you'll send us your questions to include in future episodes. Let us know what you're struggling with and how we might be of support to you. We're in this together and we're here to help. You can reach me at kate at hardfeelings.org. Weird Times is produced and edited by Rij Almi. It was recorded at the Dark Studio Sound Company in Toronto. The featured song is Greylock by Blue Dot Sessions. Please note that this podcast is meant strictly for informational purposes and is not a substitute for mental health care from a regulated health professional. Stay tuned, stay well, and stay safe. <laughs>